0: People pay money to see me in a 20 by 20 ring. Again, wrestling fans, welcome back to another edition of the 20x20 20 20 Ring Crew. I am your host, Joe, and I am here by myself again this week. Matt is taking a vacation. Rest easy, bro. We're going to do another watch-along episode. I hope you guys don't mind. It is the 20th anniversary of WCW's February 1999 pay-per-view Super Brawl 9 happening on February 21st. 1999, so a day over the 20th anniversary. It emanated from the Oakland Arena, Oakland, California. They had an attendance of 15,880 people. Not too shabby, I guess, for a pay-per-view in 99. Uh, for WCW, anyway. Of course, this this watch-along is going to be done on the WWE Network. And again, for those of you who don't have a subscription, or would like information on getting one, or getting a discount on one, please help support the show Stop on over to 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash WWE Network, that's all one word, and get yourself some info, get yourself signed up so you can enjoy all the benefits that is the WWE Network. Pay-per-views, original shows, archive upon archive upon archive of really great wrestling over the years, so have at it with us we're going to start from the beginning so i hope you guys got your network subscription fired up there and here i am gonna press the watch from beginning button right now here we are zero zero one and we're starting and we see tori wilson absolutely lovely and gorgeous in nothing but a bed sheet and she's i think she's trying to order room service if i'm not mistaken and she's talking to somebody who we don't know as of yet if i remember correctly this person gives her tickets to Super Brawl, and that's how they figure into all this. She is absolutely gorgeous. So, I'm gonna save the spoiler for this later. If you guys haven't watched this pay-per-view before, that's fine. I'm not gonna spoil this part for you, because I do have a lot to say, and it does tie in later. So, here we are. They open up with a a video package after the little bit of Tori Wilson footage, and you're seeing uh, the likes of Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Goldberg, Lex Luger, all spinning around in an all-black setting, Including Hollywood Hogan, Kevin Nash Pretty much a majority of their their top talents I guess you could say We're seeing a video package now between Goldberg and Bam Bam Bigelow Can't speak enough good about Bam Bam Very athletic for a big guy I still think, I don't know how you guys feel But I still think he's a shoe in for this year's WWE's Hall of Fame Not that that carries the, the greatest amount of credibility to me But that's another story for another podcast episode here we are, Super Brawl 9, you have the the graphics come up, and we see the crowd now, and a lot of NWO, like Wolfpack and Outsider stuff in the crowd, a lot of signs. Oakland, Oakland was, was pretty pretty much Wolfpack territory, uh, whether anybody liked it or not, and I can, I can tell you right now, the theme, the theme song to the Wolfpack gets played quite a fucking bit during this pay-per-view because of all the members that are on the card, and it just, it pisses me off. Uh, it the song is is what it is. I'm not a I'm not necessarily a fan of it, but I also uh, like. I I don't love it. I don't hate it, but it does get played quite a bit on this pay per view. That's a warning in case you uh, you don't like it. Our broadcast team for this pay per view is Tony Cervani, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Mike Tenay. I miss Mike Tenay. I think he made a really great, maybe not star commentator, but definitely one of the team, especially when it came to. The technicalities of, of a match. Uh, you know, he knew the movesets. He was very knowledgeable about each of the wrestlers. Having him do anything other than that on commentary was a bit much for me. I didn't necessarily like that. But uh, you guys should go back. Again, do it on the WWE Network. And check out some old Mike Tenet stuff. E- even when he was with TNA. Uh, again, TNA kind of tried to make him more than what he should have been. But you still get to see and enjoy Mike Tenay. In his element, I mean, he's he's pretty decent as a wrestling commentator. Again, this WCW Super Brawl 9 is emanating from Oakland, California. I don't know for sure if this is the same arena that is now home to the Golden State Warriors. I want to say it is. I'm not quite sure. It seems to be. It, obviously, um, as of this broadcast, they have since remodeled it, and I think it's, right. currently, I think it's the O2 Arena. So. Earlier, when the pay-per-view started, they brought out, encased in a glass box, the tag team titles. They're, now they're showing a, a video package of a tournament that has been going on for these these said titles that features quite a few pretty interesting teams they do mention the breakup of Mang and the Barbarian during the tournament i don't remember how they broke up or why exactly they broke up But tonight, for the titles, uh, essentially in a possible two out of three falls match, so to speak, you're going to see the likes of Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit representing the Four Horsemen against Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig. For me, this this has such opportunity to be the main event of this pay-per-view. This reminds me of old NWA like Crockett promotion stuff and I remember watching this the first time as it aired live and I was so fucking excited. Now the way they went about doing this match, essentially Benoit and Malenko have to win once in order to challenge for the right at the title. So the, they essentially have to wrestle two matches but if they lose the first one, they're completely out and Windham and Hennig automatically Won the titles that's the way the tournament was set up that's the way this pay-per-view match is set up so here we see the late great mean gene oakland showing off those titles not my favorite set of tag titles i really love the ones from the late 80s especially the ones that were held by Arn anderson and tully blanchard those were kind of like a bluish color and then you know they, they had gold plates and stuff those were pretty badass to me i, I really like those these 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 are okay. They're showing they're showing uh, graphics for the now defunct WCW hotline. I I never was, I never was a fan of the hotline. I know talking to a lot of the old school guys uh, on Facebook and and what have you, you do get a lot of those guys who, you know, were into the hotline or or used it and, uh, you know, were fans of it. By 97, I already had access to the internet. So one way or another, I was finding out stuff, again, rumors. I, I don't, I don't, think of it anything other than rumors until it comes true, but you're still finding out information through um, Scoops and whatnot. Scoops was one of the trailblazers as far as dirt sheets go. I, I remember those, them being one of the the first websites pretty much available to everybody as early as 1997, so yeah, I, was, I never used the hotline, never was a fan of the hotline. I, I had no use for it. Oh boy. And so the pay-per-view starts, we have... <laughs> we have... The first Wolfpack member coming out for the evening in Disco Inferno, and uh, I, I speak, I speak so sullenly about this because I can't stand Disco Inferno. He's not even good in a cheesy way to me. I just he's fucking annoying, is what he is. I don't remember how he was even how he even became a part of the wolf pack if i had to guess it was something along the lines of like he just kept nagging him until they made him a a member to me this is just so fucking stupid but also synonymous with the way wcw was being booked i mean they week after week month after month you just had all these stupid fucking ideas around this time that just didn't really make sense and again i don't i don't fully blame uh, vince russo for this but he did have a lot to do with it he was more all about crash tv than he was actual wrestling booking uh, th- he just approached it with such a, a non-sequitur sense you know uh, just a lot of it didn't make any sense uh they showed a graphic i'm sorry they showed a video package with uh, booker t from last week on thunder where disco inferno mentions usage of the word brother both of harlem heath feel that it's racially motivated. So I guess that was the the little bit of an angle or storyline behind this match. That's all that's all it was. It was like, oh, you misuse the word brother, or at least I think you do, so now we're gonna have a match. And that's what's starting off this pay per view. I can't believe people paid for this shit. I know I didn't pay for this shit. I watched it on a on a bootleg cable box. So again I, I don't like Disco Inferno and Booker T at this point, I mean, he's he's still a part part of Harlem Heat, and Booker T was always impressive, and and he definitely had the drive. He had his character down, uh, you know. A lot of guys in WCW at this point, they either let the company and the situation affect them to the point where they didn't give two shits, or they just weren't with it to begin. And Booker T was going through this. He was definitely not necessarily showing it on camera. Uh, I recently listened to one of. Bruce Pritchard's podcast, I don't remember what episode it was, but they were talking about Booker T and the way he used to talk to the camera after a match. He would go through, you know, these very intense matches at times. For someone who was supposed to be winded, at the end of the match, whether he was victorious or not, he would always talk to the camera, and and I noticed Buff Bagwell used to do the same thing, like all the damn time. And whoever was commenting on it, whether it be Pritchard or Bischoff, or, I forget, but they made a point, like you're 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 still in character, like you don't get to just all of a sudden not be winded after this hellacious match you just had. So like, stop showboating to the camera. That made complete sense to me. I never understood why either of them did it other than to showboat. Uh, Especially Buff. I think Buff is the biggest defender out of the two. But Booker T used to do it as well. This match between Booker T and Disco Inferno goes about 9 minutes and 20 seconds, give or take. Booker T wins. But since, seriously... How horrible, on a scale of boogie oogie oogies, is Disco Inferno as part of the fucking wolf pack? I mean, it's so fucking stupid. Join us on Facebook, facebook.com, slash groups, slash 20x20talk, and uh, help us decide how, how horrible was Disco Inferno on a scale of boogie oogie oogies. I, myself, vote 10. 10 Boogie Yogi Guys, we're going to let you enjoy the rest of the match. Whatever's left of it. We'll come back right after the match. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Fight TV. Go ahead and download the app and support the show. Every time you download the app from us, we're going to give you $10 of credit to make your first purchase on the Fight TV app. Get access to all kinds of independent wrestling, Ring of Honor, Evolve, and many, many other feds only pay for the shows that you want to see so go ahead and download the fight tv app from us over at 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash fight f-i-t-e hey guys we're back thanks for that quick intermission Again, we are watching WCW's Super Brawl 9 emanating from Oakland, California. It's the 20th anniversary of the show. That's why we're covering it. We just finished the Booker T versus Disco Inferno match. I took an intermission because I really didn't have too much else to say about that damn match. Moving on, we're going to start at the 21 minute 31 second mark for our second match. And I pressed play already. So uh, coming out, you have... Chris Jericho, Lionheart Chris Jericho at that, with Ralphus, and they're going to be going up against Perry Saturn. Again, the, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of those matches where WCW didn't really have a very strong story or angle behind the actual reasoning for the match, which listening to tons of podcast episodes and interviews and such you get the overwhelming sense that whenever Vince Russo was booking or or other people that had no like wrestling knowledge in the way of booking when that committee booked you you had a lot of stuff that were just built on like castles made of sand you know i mean shit there was no real meat to the story it was just like hey you guys, this is your job. this is your this is the reason you're going to go wrestle and let's have at it. That's that. There's no there was no build-up or very little build-up. And when there was build up, it was usually poorly executed. Uh Ralphus is in a dress complete with earrings, and I know Saturn comes out in a dress, I don't remember exactly why they're in the dresses. Again, nonsensical stuff here with 99's WCW, so. But, uh, Perry Saturn's coming to the ring now. Perry Saturn was always a really solid wrestler for me to watch, even though he's coming out in a dress. He wrestles pretty well in this match, and so does Chris Jericho. I've always been a fan of Chris Jericho as well. Both of these guys, very, this should be a very solid match, and for the most part it is. Uh, yeah, I don't... I don't necessarily have gripes with this match other than the whole random feel to it. I mean, they easily could have had this match without the dresses and the bullshit and probably made it more entertaining than they already did. But again, WCW's booking committee, and and the reason I, I say... I mentioned other people possibly being the reason for these stupid angles is because WCW was being booked as a committee. I'm pretty sure at this point it was still a committee, and I'm not quite sure who was booking other than the likes of Vince Russo, maybe Kevin Sullivan, maybe Kevin Nash, uh, and then also maybe some corporate execs were part of, of this as well. I honestly don't remember who has the book right now. All I can say is I, I didn't really agree with it a lot of the times. And, you know, you have Jericho just going to come out and he's going to do his job regardless. And he's he's one of the few. I, I'm, I'm going to say the same thing for Perry Saturn. He's one of the few who would just come out like, fuck it, you want me to wrestle in a dress? I'm going to wrestle in a dress. That's fine. But... You didn't always have that with all the WCW talent. I don't. I don't blame them necessarily because, again, a lot of this stuff is just so odd and bizarre and far-fetched in a way where it's just not doesn't necessarily work. I. I really don't know how else to say it. Jericho's on the mic and he's giving Saturn some sort of lecture. I have the volume down because uh, I've watched this way too many times. And uh, I, I don't remember what he's saying, but I, I don't care. It's not important. It's not important to the match. <laughs> Saturn's even wearing mascara <laughs> or eyeliner. Yeah, I think it's eyeliner. I think at this point, the crowd, the WCW crowd, especially the live crowds, are just... They're jaded. They've they've had this this taste of all these different wrestling styles. Especially with the cruiserweight guys or the smaller guys in general. You know, these matches always made for... There was always, uh, you know, clashes of styles. You know, you had the cruiserweights, you had the heavyweights. And whether you looked at it that way or not, you, you did definitely get a variety of stuff. Again, I just think something was lost in translation with the crowd. The crowd seems to be into it uh, at the beginning of this match, but the longer this match goes on, the crowd just, I mean, they're not sitting there chanting boring or anything, but at the same time, they're not as active as they probably should be. I mean, you have Chris Jericho versus Perry Saturn. If this were an ECW crowd, this this place would be fucking on fire for a majority of the match, whether they were um, with the wrestlers or against the wrestlers and. I think that speaks volumes about a WCW crowd at this point. Because we're looking at a match that's a little over 11 minutes. Like 11 minutes and 17 seconds. At points, the crowd is just dead. And you're seeing like pretty awesome wrestling. At least, I think so. One thing I miss about Chris Jericho when he when he's not in WCW or wasn't in WCW. Was his Lion Tamer. Pay real close attention to the way he attempts Lion Tamers when he's in WCW and it is it is more than a simple Boston Crab it's more than that simple kind of leg lock he does it in such a manner to where his opponent's neck is tilted to one side and he's putting pressure on it I think that was the most effective way to put a lion tamer on and I remember watching matches in WCW where guys would just give up like right away like shit I can't take it nope 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 and they would tap out. And over the years, especially in WWF, WWE, he has grown to alter the move because he's had to. They won't let him necessarily use the full force of the move. And it's uh, it sucks, man. I really fucking love that move. Uh, Ralph has just got his dress torn off of him by Perry Saturn. Jericho just went for the... <laughs> Jericho just went for a cover and he did it very nonchalantly by putting a foot on top of Perry Saturn and flexing and you know kind of did the come on baby as he as he posed although that was completely unnecessary for the match he both of them sold it like saturn quickly covers with almost like a quick ankle lock to take jericho down and then he proceeds to keep slamming his head into the mat like four or five, six times. It's the little subtleties in a wrestling match. If the guys put it over, if the guys sell, it still works. It still makes sense of the match. You can you can be um, you can be that douche and be that braggadocious and cocky in the ring and allow for. For things to happen organically, like a proper comeback, or a counter, or something like that. And not everybody who wrestles understands that. Especially these days. It's, it really is the little things in life. And professional wrestling. If you learn how to sell, and you sell well, it, it almost seems, especially again, especially these days, in this new era of wrestling, that's like half the fucking battle. And I think a lot of the young guys don't get that. (laughs) Saturn pulls his dress down and then hops up to the top rope and he does a frog splash. That was pretty cool. Uh, he's going to go for the rings of Saturn. That's what he's calling for. And he gets countered with a roll-up. And Jericho went to pin him in that roll-up. And he had his feet on like the second or third rope. That's crazy. By far my my favorite version of Chris Jericho so far in his career is WCW for sure. And now we see Saturn. He's got Jericho in the corner. And he's given him the, the ten punches in the corner. The only difference is... Jericho's head is under his is under Perry Saturn's dress. Jericho tries to counter into a lion tamer. Saturn rolls him up for an attempted pin. These two work great together. There's there's definitely chemistry in the ring. Um, dresses or not and they sell for each other it's pretty badass match to watch and it's only the second match on the card to me this should have been possibly moved further down the card because these guys these guys know how to go at it with one another you know they've had experience against one another in ecw and now we see saturn counter into the rings of saturn again pretty badass move if if done correctly although jericho's scooting around and he's finally got his foot on the ropes so he the ref is trying to make saturn break it I think this is where the match comes apart pretty soon. If I had to guess. Yeah, this is the one. Uh, it ends in a count out. I think it's because Saturn takes care of the ref. Now, earlier when Jericho came out, the ref came with him. So, there's something in the storyline where the ref might have been on Jericho's side this whole time? I'm not quite sure. Although, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he's refereeing the match that way. But I'm pretty sure Saturn has enough of the ref and he just takes care of the ref and then he leaves the ring and doesn't come back and i think that's why he gets counted out saturn with the death valley driver and he doesn't cover jericho he just waltzes around the ring and the ref is like hey you gotta cover him yep here we go ref gets picked up he's going for a death valley driver saturn's like screw this shit i'm done with this match He's going to put on the rings of Saturn, or at least that's what he's calling for. He decides to walk out. Says, screw it, I'm leaving. And that's it. Saturn's going to walk to the back and be counted out. And that's the end of this match. Again, such... It's almost like a waste of a match at this point. Especially with the story. Like, where does this story go? And and I I hate to tell you this. I'm, I'm not going to go back and try to figure that out at this point because... I, I really wasn't caring for WCW a lot at this point. I, I really wasn't. I was over the NWO. I think it had too many, too many people in it, too many different factions. It just it became stupid to me. But I did, I did enjoy watching this match as we see the referee raise Chris Jericho's hand after Saturn being officially counted out. And again, that match went. A little over 11 minutes officially. Uh, 11 minutes and 17 seconds. What a waste of a match. Uh, I I really thought there was a lot more things that could have been done between these two guys. With a better... Here you see Conan and Rey Mysterio talking backstage for a WCW.com interview. On this pay-per-view, you have a hair versus mask match. It's a tag match between Conan and Rey Mysterio. They're putting Rey's mask on the line up against... Hall and Nash, the Outsiders of N.W.O. Wolfpack, and Kevin Nash's hair. Why this match got signed to begin with, I will never ever know. I will speak more about that match as it happened. We cut to a a video package with Big Papa Pump, Scott Steiner, and D.D.P. Diamond Dallas Page. They are feuding over Kimberly, which is DDP's wife, Steiner. (laughs) Steiner basically wants to lay claim to her, and DDP won't let that happen. They show footage of her being thrown out of a car and and hurt. I vaguely remember this angle. I I will say this. By this time, Sullivan... Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit had already had their their go-around over woman, if I'm not mistaken. And I've said it before on a previous episode. I'll say it again. WCW really dropped the ball when it came to angles involving someone's wife. And usually... uh, for, for lack of, of better memory. It was usually DDP. Because I think they. I'm pretty sure they did one. Where Buff Bagwell. It was the same thing with him. Like oh she. You know. Your wife wants me. I can't help that. That kind of a fucking story. And it it didn't go over very well. And it's, it's going to be the same thing here tonight. With him against Scott Steiner. I'll get back to that later. Right now. We have our third match. Of the pay-per-view. Billy Kidman, who is the current and defending Cruiserweight Champion, he's defending against Chavo Guerrero Jr., and it is a title match. So, the Cruiserweight title is on the line. We see a sign that says WWF, and it stands for Worst Wrestling Federation. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed my WCW a lot, um, especially when they were having their their golden run, but as much as people wanna talk shit about either federation or either organization, let's face it, WCW was the one where the cruiserweights thrived. WWF never really had that going for them. Even when they signed Taka Michinoku, that was a huge, huge deal. You know, they made a big press conference. It was it was all over the place. And Taka and that whole light heavyweight division just it never really went anywhere and it sucks because you had you you did have Takamitsu who was super hot at the time you had Brian Christopher you had Scott Taylor or Scotty Tuhadi if you want to call him that those three guys alone definitely set you up for a pretty solid division of guys for cruiserweight guys or light heavyweight guys whatever you want to call them and it just it didn't it didn't gel it didn't gel well with that company and and those fans and i man i never i never really understood that because for anybody who wanted to see actual pro wrestling you definitely got it with those guys whether they were doing it straight up Lucha style or or just light heavyweight style in general and i think that's Well, I know. I know that's a big reason why WCW had ratings, good ratings, for quite a long time. Where it was all the little guys doing all the heavy lifting. I'm trying to think back at all of the former WCW Cruiserweight Champions. You know, obviously we talk about Rey Mysterio, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, and then Billy Kidman. I, I'm, I'm, my brain isn't working. I can't think of any more off the top of my head, but I would really like to know where you guys stand on Billy Kidman and, like, his ranks of, out out of all the WCW Cruiserweight Champions. I think he's underrated. Um, That shooting star press was pretty fucking phenomenal and it wasn't like he was in uh he was ever in bad shape that i could remember i know he had uh you know injury issues here and there over the years he he made for a great working champ i was always entertained by him even even in this match where wcw kind of as as strange as this sounds chavo guerrero was kind of watered down here he was a lot more gimmicky in wcw than most of the the cruiser, most of the serious cruiserweights were. Don't let his gimmick fool you, uh, Chavo Guerrero. He's he's a he's definitely a Guerrero, and that man can wrestle. And if you don't believe me, shit, go take, uh, you know, take a pause out of this and go watch some Lucha Underground, especially season one. And he's up there in age at that point. So, for him to be wrestling and and still putting on a hell of a show, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Chavo's legit. Chavo's a legit wrestler. It was it was really cool to see him too, you know, because he here he is classified as a cruiserweight. Obviously, he's vying for the title, but he he's not necessarily going the bout of being your traditional high flying luchador per se. He's he's very much rooted in technical wrestling, and you get a lot of that too with Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero wasn't afraid to to stop what the hell he was doing in the match and be less less of a high flyer and i think when you don't when you you when you take that approach as a cruiserweight and you don't give the fans all that high flying and and crazy wild cruiserweight experience i think you catch the fans off guard and i think that's a lot of what this match gets exposed as it's just chavo's here he's he's a working wrestler he's He's vying for the title. He's going to do it this way as opposed to jumping off the ropes every 10 seconds or so, you know. He's definitely playing playing up the heel angle, which is fine. But I think his approach, being, being because it's less high flying, is taking the crowd out of the match. Here we have a, a near fall by... Billy Kidman, as he came off the top rope. Nice tilt the world backbreaker by Chavo Guerrero. Chavo Guerrero Jr., excuse me. Chavo's another one, too. You know, where do you guys stand on on Chavo Guerrero Jr. as a cruiserweight? I don't remember whether he won the belt or not. I know he didn't win it on this pay-per-view, I could tell you that much. Uh, Kidman was too hot. Kidman eventually wins with the Shooting Star Press. Again, one hell of a move and his accuracy was pretty crazy. I've only seen him mess it up a few times. Kidman gets the win here, he retains the cruiserweight title, the match goes about 8 minutes and 26 seconds. Yeah, we see the replays here of the match, and Kidman gets the 3. I think we don't talk enough old WCW on this podcast. It's kind of a shame because there, you know, there was good WCW. You know, don't get me wrong. Just like every organization, there's good and then there's bad. You know, obviously, everybody has, opinion, has an opinion, but yeah, there was good WCW. And even, even when I wasn't watching, if I wasn't watching religiously i still watched certain guys i still tried to keep up with certain guys i say this because they just showed a package a video package with uh, basically hyping the goldberg versus bam bam bigelow match that's gonna happen later in the pay-per-view and bam bam was always one of those guys for me Uh, i've always been a bam bam bigelow fan the first time i ever saw him was in the wwf Ages and ages ago and I, I had been a fan ever since. Again, I think he's a shoo-in for the Hall the WWE Hall of Fame this year. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it to me it makes too much sense. They're gonna be in his neck of the woods. He's definitely one of the most underrated big men in the sport. Uh they show the tag team championships, the vacated tag team championships. That's what's going on now. Uh if we're keeping tabs with one another, I am at the 50 minute and 59 second mark of the pay-per-view. Again, we're watching WCW's Super Brawl 9. It's the 20th anniversary of this pay-per-view. And we have Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig come out first in this tag team tournament match. Again, the stipulation for this match is their opponents, uh, the Four Horsemen, or two of the Four Horsemen, Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit are going to take on Henning and Wyndham. Essentially, Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit have to win the first match in order for there even to be a championship match. If they don't win and they lose right away, there will be no second match. Henning and Wyndham get awarded the tag team titles. You know... Um, Speaking of the Four Horsemen, when when people talk about the Four Horsemen and their favorite uh, version of the Four Horsemen, I don't think there's, obviously I don't think there's any one right answer or any one wrong answer, but it's one of those, and, and I, here's where WCW loses stuff in translation for not just the old school fan in me, but the wrestling fan in me. You have a faction with the prestige and history that is the Four Horsemen. All four of these guys in the ring right now were horsemen at one point or another. It should have been, and I and I say should here because it never really was this way, it should have been one of those where the torch gets passed down without without any bullshit happening. And I'm not saying all the members had to be replaced all at once or anything of that nature, but whenever there was a guy that was not going to be in it for one reason or another, you know, he gets excommunicated from the group. I, I was always a fan of the sentiment of not replacing him right away. I think that was always an opportunity since i'm gonna fantasy book here i think that was always an opportunity to have three horsemen and then they basically go on without a fourth member until someone came up worthy enough to them in the way of a storyline or they would bring like if they knew they were bringing someone in of high caliber that fit that faction they could have done that too where they introduced the fourth member of the horsemen as this someone who's new to the company or coming back to the company that sort of thing and they could have went they could have went on and had a lot of success with that angle and that faction for years and years and years Uh, but they never seemed to do that it was always some bullshit going on and I'm conflicted because I'm a huge fan of the war games I believe it was 1997 maybe 98 where it was the horseman versus the NWO Kurt Hennig turns on the horseman he becomes NWO the Horsemen are essentially laid to rest right in their own backyard in North Carolina. I mean that entire match, the match was great in and of itself but then you had that, you had such a great build up of a storyline where Henning gets Arn Anderson's spot because Arn Anderson can't do it anymore and you know who better to have that spot than Kurt Henning. I mean he definitely had the the ability, he had the legacy, you know obviously a, a second or third generation wrestler like that's what I'm talking about. You should have guys like that. Guys who have been a, a, a part of the business or been around the business enough to be considered worthy of that spot but then they went and they shit on the horsemen <laughs> it seemed like it seemed like wcw always shat on the horseman. and i know if you go back and you listen to flair talking interviews and stuff and he fucking hated it he hated oh man here comes a pun. He hated beating a dead horse because <laughs> that's what it felt like to him. Just keep he. They kept bringing back the horsemen with no real regard, or it was just like a it was like a last resort all the time. Like oh, we don't got anything else going on, so let's bring back the horsemen. And so they would, and you know because Ric Flair. Riff flair was loyal to a fault, and you know he would do whatever he could to get the company over, and the horsemen were sacrificed multiple times to be honest with you i'm I'm really surprised that they are still held in in some sort of um prestigious regard these days. You mentioned. The phrase horsemen or horsewomen, if you're a current WWE fan. And everybody knows where that comes from and what it's about or what it's supposed to be about. Uh, getting back to the match here. Currently, Benoit's in the ring with Kurt Hennig. This is still the first match. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Benoit and Malenko win the first match. So, there there will be a an actual... They will earn a title shot and, and have that second match. Um, and it immediately follows the first match. So it's just kind of like a very brief a very brief intermission or it's supposed to be. If you're asking me about fantasy booking versions of the Horseman I really liked the version with Benoit and Malenko. I know they're smaller guys, but Benoit's a fucking beast. And it didn't. Benoit was one of those those smaller guys, and I don't even look at him as a cruiserweight. Although he's, you know, he's of that stature. He's just like a very beefy cruiserweight. I I never never saw him with that label, and never really it, that didn't gel for me. To me, Chris Benoit was not a cruiserweight. He was just a really small heavyweight, and I'm watching him now, he's in the ring with Barry Windham, who's easily, easily got a foot, uh, advantage of him in height, and and, uh probably some poundage too because you know again Wyndham's not at his his top physical peak here but Benoit would go with the best of them uh, no matter what size they were you know because he was a good professional wrestler a great professional wrestler he knew how to do the job for everybody and with everybody he knew how to sell he knew he knew ring psychology that was one thing I've said it before on the podcast where Benoit taught me how to to work better uh, at my nine to five Um and it involved wasting no motion. You go in with the intent. If for Benoit, he was in the ring. He would he would try not to waste any motion. He wanted to make everything count, so that he could he could essentially dish out the max maximum amount of punishment to his opponent or opponents, and conserve energy and be you know kind of increase the effective effectiveness of what he was doing in the ring to his opponent. And I was I have always been a fan of that. In, in life in general, not just professional wrestling. He he knew exactly what he was doing, and for me, I mean, hell, that's what you want. You want someone who's so savvy in the ring, not just physically, but mentally as well. Um, Dean Malenko, who initially was booked as being the man of a thousand holds when he came to WCW, obviously second-generation wrestler with his dad being Boris Malenko, um, very well-versed, you know, Malenko came over from... Uh, I think all Japan. I think he came from all Japan at that point to WCW. You know, he's he, uh, again, he's no shill. He's awesome at being a technical wrestler and yeah, they build him as a cruiserweight because he's a small guy, but essentially that's what you were getting was a, a really small and compact all around complete wrestler in Dean Malenko. And while Miss, uh, while Kurt Hennig or Mr. Perfect, I almost called him Mr. Perfect to start, but while Kurt Hennig was part of the Horseman for a brief amount of time, uh, he also works for me. I don't think I would keep him on my Ultimate version of Four Horsemen, but again, uh, you know, Multi-generational wrestler, uh, his dad being Larry the Axe, very savvy in the ring, both mentally and physically. He sold very well. He, out of everybody that I remember, you know, having having what it takes to be a really great professional wrestler, Kurt Henning is up there with guys who could sell the best. Um, earlier in this match, he gets thrown into the corner by Chris Benoit, like very violently. And when he hits the corner, he hits it with such force, and then he bounces and like falls immediately to the mat and grabs his back like fuck that hurt and he sold it very well it's little things like that that get those moves over and you're like oh shit Benoit's a beast yeah you can thank Kurt Henning for selling that move don't get me wrong I'm not taking anything away from Benoit either but that's the dance ladies and gentlemen that's the dance of professional wrestling and when it when it works like that everybody wins including the fans. Benoit's calling for uh for the for the end here, the end of the match. He he gets up and he's on the top rope with his diving headbutt lands on Kurt Hennig. He goes for the pin. The pin's slow though and and Windham is able to push him off. And again, we're still in the first match of the potential two matches. <laughs> Benoit tags in Malenko. Wyndham is fighting with the the ref because Wyndham won't go back to his corner. Malenko immediately goes for the pin on Kurt Henning because he sees Kurt Henning was still down on the mat and refusing to get up. Because Wyndham was preoccupying the ref, uh, we essentially lose out on a victory at this point. Malenko slowing down the pace as he drop kicks Kurt Henning from the top rope onto the... Apron of the mat. But again, just awesome fucking tag team wrestling from both of these teams. Malenko throws Henning out onto the floor. And and immediately you see Crispin Wan and Barry Wyndham both drop to the floor and go towards Kurt Henning. Um, obviously for their own reasons. But that's what I'm talking about, man. This, this match is fucking excellent. To me, this should have been your main event. Henning with the low blow on Malenko... <laughs> but this should have been your main event. I thought it would have been so fucking cool to have this this storyline um come together and and just end up the way that it did with there being a second match, but the second match was so quick and then you have uh you have spoiler alert, you have Windham and Hennig win the tag titles, but under controversy and you could have ended the the pay per view like that—that would have gave you some build up for the next night on Nitro. But who am I, right? Growing up, uh, I got to witness a lot of Barry Windham being being a huge NWA fan and. I know a lot of people are 50-50 on Wyndham. I would take Barry Wyndham as one of the horsemen any day of the fucking week. Dude had stamina for fucking days, no matter what shape he was in. Um, You know, doing 60-minute Broadway matches with fucking Ric Flair when I was growing up. Like, goddamn. Anyone who, who can wrestle for fucking 30 minutes, 60 minutes, what have you. I don't care who you are. You're, you're phenomenal in my book because you see these guys come in uh, a few months ago uh, I had went to a warrior wrestling match or a warrior wrestling uh, card I think it was warrior wrestling 3 and the the main event featured um, Brian Cage, the, the swolverine guys built like a brick fucking shit house, awesome looking physique but he lacked stamina and damn, it took away from the match because he was doing some awesome shit in this match but he just didn't. He didn't have the the stamina it took. And then I want to say later that weekend he had a. Uh a championship match in Impact Wrestling against Johnny Impact, and again that match suffered because Brian Cage didn't have the stamina to really hang with what Johnny Cage is willing to do. So Johnny Cage kind of had to wrestle down. Or, I'm sorry, Johnny Cage. Johnny Impact had to wrestle down to Brian Cage's level, and it, it definitely had the match suffer. A few seconds ago, you had Benoit do the snot rockets on to I think it was Kurt Hennig. Oh. Henning hits Benoit with an atomic drop. It's the fucking love of that move, the atomic drop. Always effective. Didn't didn't matter how big you were how small you were. You give someone the atomic drop, that shit hurts. <laughs> I've had the atomic drop done to me. And if you're hitting someone uh, in that, that nether region area between, uh, like in the taint area, <laughs> for lack of a better term, it hurts damn it hurt Wyndham with the patented rollover uh superplex off the top rope that was always a sweet fucking move he'd get you up for superplex and as he landed he would quickly roll over and pin you uh and he would do it like so fluidly it was fucking sweet he just did it right now just as fluid as he did it back in 1989 which again getting back to my point here sorry train got derailed uh windham windham would make my ultimate version of the four horsemen for sure so for my money i think it would be uh benoit so chris benoit barry windham rick flair of course arn anderson pretty sure about those four i definitely do i definitely want to do a Horseman episode for this podcast at some point. Uh, I think a lot of you guys would uh, be very opinionated on, on your your favorite members. Your favorite versions. Um, you know who you thought was a bust as a Horseman. Because I mean let's face it. I know at least uh, Paul Roma comes to mind for me. So but yeah that would be a really interesting episode to do. And the match continues here. You still have Benoit and Hennig in the ring. Henning with that uh, rolling forward s- Snap. Snapmare, I guess. That um, he would always do. It was a pretty badass move. Henning there's another guy who... You know, they sign him and he goes over and... He's one of those guys like, Hey man, just let me wrestle. Let me go in there, let me do what I do. And he'll sell for you. And put you over. And, and get himself over in the process. And they just underutilized him and that talent. That, that wrestling mind. Those guys, shit for my money. I, I would have taken both him him and, well, all four of these guys, as a matter of fact, I would have took all four of these guys and been like, look, you know, I'd sign you to a contract, and, uh, you know, I'd make you, I'd make you road agents at some point, all four of you guys, and be like, hey, you know, I need you to wrestle here and there, but I also want you to teach teach these guys everything teach these guys everything you know and i'd pay them fucking handsomely that's an investment into foundation of your company and i think it's something that was just completely ignored by the many versions of wcw management sad sad fucking times man I think, I think if stuff like that happened, we definitely would still see WCW in operation and not owned by the WWF and also not defunct, or WWE, I'm sorry. Oh man, hitting Chops Benoit, that's something you don't really see too much in this match and I'm kind of surprised because, you know, obviously both of those guys are known for Chops, but I also think it speaks volumes to this, this match in general, like this is a straight up legit awesome fucking wrestling pro wrestling man and so the lack of chopping here i'm not bothered by it even though it it just made sense that they would kind of get into it at, at some point or another maybe this is if this was in a new japan ring we would see more of that but uh malenko is on fire he's on the comeback he's got he just head butted both henning and windham together and now all four guys are in the ring and malenko rolls through on Wyndham, and he puts him in the Texas Cloverleaf, which is essentially a figure four, just using um, your arms as opposed to your legs. He didn't get it in very well. Henning came in for the save. Hennig, excuse me. I know a lot of you have that uh, that whole debacle where you you might have known it was Henning all along but not necessarily, and also thought it was Henning, H-E-N-N-I-N-G. After Kurt Henning saves Barry Windham from the Texas Cloverleaf, Malenko ends up putting it on again, and that's how they win the first match. But immediately, the second match starts, immediately. There's no rest period. I think they're supposed to be, but they're just... (laughs) The horsemen are just pounding away on both of these guys. But that's what gets them into trouble, because while they do that, Malenko goes over... To put the cloverleaf on Wyndham again, and Wyndham takes his belt and starts to choke Dean Malenko with it. So he's got him. Uh, he's got the neck. He's got the belt around his neck. He ends up clotheslining him, and he chokes him while he's down. So he just, it, as of right now, it looks like he's got him in a chokehold on the floor, on the mat, and there's your one, two, three pin. Wyndham wins the second fall, as it were, and that makes Wyndham and Henning the new tag team champions. Uh, Wyndham rolls out of the ring, gets his arm raised by his partner, as Henning takes the belt from him. This was a great fucking match, great fucking match. Henning slaps one of the refs, and they take they take the uh, the titles with them. I just now noticed too that these titles, although they have their black leather, patent black leather on the outside. Where the plates are on the inside they're that like traditional blue and that's that's kind of like the blue i was talking about earlier when i was talking about the the tag belts that i particularly like that's a a very similar blue again these aren't too bad and they're not my favorite but they still don't look too bad for wcw title belts in 1999. Uh, again, they're replaying the match. The match goes a little over 20 minutes, like 20 minutes and 36 seconds. Again, keep in mind the titles were vacant coming into the match. And the these two matches, um, or falls, however you want to refer to them, they were the finals of the tournament because uh, it, was, it was a double elimination. So uh, there you have it, uh, new tag team champs after 20 minutes. You know what this, this match reminded me of the 2019 Royal Rumble match between Daniel Bryan and AJ Styles, where you had you had a, a crowd who was so so used to just bullshit. Like, bullshit match after bullshit match after bullshit match. That when when they get an actual pro wrestling match with a decent finish, you, it's like you don't know how to act as a wrestling fan. And the same thing happened at the Royal Rumble between Bryan and Styles. They put on a pretty decent match, and I was surprised. Because, let's face it, WWE has a horrible habit of watering them down. And then also, like, hey, go out there and just give us a couple minutes of bullshit instead of doing what you want to do, so I was all prepared for that, but no, Brian and Styles at Royal Rumble uh, 2019 was a real decent match, but the crowd wasn't into it because of uh, the bullshit leading up to that match, so they were, like, they were emotionally drained, or they were just not emotionally into the match at that point, and um, it, it, it kills me. It pains me to see two guys with like the potential to have what, what would be referred to in some circles as a five-star match. And it just all goes to waste. All that potential goes to waste. It, uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Me as a, a pro wrestling purist, yeah, it's very heartbreaking to me. Um, we are headed into the fifth match of the pay-per-view. And right now we're watching a video package that involves Ric Flair... Rowdy Roddy Piper, Brett the Hitman Hart, and Scott Hall, all who were in contention at some point or another in this storyline for the United States title. Um, so that match will happen later, and, uh, Hall eventually just gets the title handed over to him. And we'll, we'll, we'll explain that later, um, later on in the podcast, but, um, they now cut to another NWO Wolfpack member coming out. And this time it's going to be Nash and Hall the Outsiders for the hair versus mask match. And so here we see Nash, Luger, Miss Elizabeth, and Scott Hall all come out as part of the Wolfpack. Luger injured his forearm before the the event, which... um. Ends up having Scott Hall fill in as uh, Kevin Nash's partner, and uh, as they as they stroll out so nonchalantly, <laughs> you have uh, you have them walking by an actual barber's chair that's kind of like set in between the beginning of the crowd and the wrestlers' entrance. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, this all started with Miss Elizabeth. So there, the the Wolf Pack is coming to the ring right now again Luger Luger and Miss Elizabeth like I'm sorry they just, they never needed to be part of any version of the fucking NWO they just didn't so for me it it was bittersweet seeing my boys the outsiders here in a match like this um with the likes of Luger and Miss Elizabeth in tow and again the the stipulation in this match is mask versus hair and uh, originally I told you that it was Supposed to be Kevin Nash's hair. It isn't Kevin Nash's hair that's on the line. It's Miss Elizabeth's hair that's on the line. So we could possibly see her go bald at the end of this match. Uh, You have Conan and Rey Mysterio getting in the ring. I don't remember too many tag team matches with Conan and Rey Mysterio as a tag team. They seem to gel pretty well though, I mean, let's face it, they've had a lot of Lucha Libre experience uh, with one another, whether it be singles competition or or mixed tags, so this should be a no-brainer for them, and it it does end up being a pretty solid match, so no real surprise there, at least for those uh, familiar with these guys. I never, as entertaining as it is to to some people, I never really resonated with Conan in, in this form. Um, although I could understand why he didn't want to stay with the, like, very traditional lucha gimmick that he once had, um, over the years... Especially during the Monday Night Wars, you always had those Mexican wrestlers, the luchadors that would come over and work for WCW or WWF. For whatever reason, they just, they would end up wanting to amalgamate into something more American. Or they would be forced into working as something more American in the way of culture. I mean, let's face it, um, you know, Rey Mysterio would go on to, spoiler alert, he loses the mask here, so... Uh, he would go on to lose the mask and then eventually be um, put into a faction known as the Filthy Animals. It was, it was hardly anything Mexican per se, and, and the group didn't really consist of any other Mexican or Latin people, except maybe um, a nitro girl. At one point, so... uh, But then you go on and you look at, um, like, Juventud Guerrera or Psychosis, uh, those guys, when they became the Mexicos further in their career. uh, You have stuff like that. It just, it seems, especially, again, especially during these times of the Monday Night Wars you have a lot of that where their culture becomes less about being at least traditionally mexican and then becoming more of a stereotypical mexican version of tradition you know you have you have the LWO which yeah it was supposed to be the Latino World Order but you know i i grew i am mexican uh, and i grew up in a mexican family and a lot of the the way they were portrayed whether they wanted to be portrayed that way or not It's pretty much on the stereotypical side one way or another that includes the LWO Uh, Conan isn't helping things here because he's you know, he's got the fucking pants sagging and very gangbanger-esque Approach to a character so he just he's just like another fucking essay from the block, you know I I, me personally I never had that big of an issue with it What am I supposed to do tell these guys not to? do these gimmicks Um, that's not up to me Uh, that's partly up to them and partly up to the company they're working for and let's face it these guys are coming through a time in the industry where there's big money to be made and they're trying to make it while they can because traditionally the wrestling business is feast or famine you you don't have you don't always have an opportunity at big money so when it's there you take it and you take it at at some sort of sacrifice whether it be personally or professionally uh we see hall tagging nash i was trying to explain to my wife yesterday that like the the actual size of Kevin Nash and and some of these other guys. Uh, I myself, I'm six foot eight, about 240 pounds, and I'm I'm not a small person. And she understands that. She knows that. That's one of the reasons she loves me. But. <laughs> I'm trying to explain to her, her and I were sitting together, she was actually watching this with me at one point, she couldn't, she just couldn't believe the proportions of some of these guys, and I was like, look at Kevin Nash compared to Scott Hall. I know Kevin Nash build, build is billed as 7 feet, and he's not actually 7 feet, he's like 6'9", six, 6'10", six, tops. And I know a matter of inches is just a matter of inches, but I was trying to explain to her he's really wide. He's he's a wide body guy. And I've met him at conventions before. I've I've met him and Hall at conventions before. <laughs> They're not small. They're not small at all. As a matter of fact, just because of the 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 propor like the athletic proportions of these guys' bodies. Again, more so towards Kevin Nash. But you look at someone like uh, six or you know X Pac, Sean Waltman, whatever you want to call him. Now I'm six foot eight, and I'm again I'm a big dude, but I'm not a, necessarily a wide guy. X Pac, he's like six 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 five, but he's so just big. You know, it's it's Part of it's muscle, uh, but um, he looks kind of scrawny compared to some of these guys in the ring that he wrestles. But when you meet him in person, he's not a fucking small dude. He doesn't come across as a small dude. So, I, uh, her and I are sitting, my wife and I are sitting next to each other watching this. And I was trying to explain to her just how wide Kevin Nash is. And I put my arm around her and I told her, I'm like, he's literally as wide as we are sitting together. Although it seems astonishing, it's true. He's... He's just got that crazy build to his body. And and he's tall, so he's just he looks even more massive that way. This match, it really came to a surprise to me. Watching it the first time around, as it happened, I was genuinely shocked that Rey Mysterio loses his mask. I say that because, other than this storyline, there's no real reason, there's no good reason for it to happen. And if you think about it, for those of you who who are somewhat familiar with lucha libre usually when there's a mask versus mask match or a hair versus mask something along those lines it's it's done in, in more of a traditional sense where you have a guy who's either leaving the company and so the mask is you know it's time for the mask to come off or he's retiring or he's going to be out for a completely long time, or you know, there's it's there's some sort of real importance or priority behind the loss of a mask. I don't know when this ever came into effect, but the whole losing of a mask, or the whole I, let me let me take that back, the whole owning of a mask actually used to be where a guy would come in; it was his gimmick to start with. So he. He owned that character. He owned the mask. These days, a majority of the lucha libre um, culture and organizations that are out there, the companies own the mask. So you'll have multiple multiple guys play a masked luchador if necessary. So when it comes to losing a mask, sometimes it's like, hey, we have you know we want to put this on the shelf. We want to put this character on the shelf. So we're gonna just have you lose the mask or maybe a guy's leaving and they have no one else to replace the ma- uh, the Luchador under the mask and it, that it's more of a situation of that whereas here with Rey Mysterio clearly he is the owner of, of that gimmick and he owns that mask him losing, uh, it was never his idea, if you go back and listen to interviews with him, it was never his idea, it was Eric Bischoff's idea for this to happen and Eric Bischoff to this day um, talks about what a fuck up this was, it was a bad call on the part of Rey Mysterio and his character. I think I think overall any any luchador that has to go through this, the loss of their mask, especially Rey Mysterio, because clearly he is one of the more popular, not just in Mexico, but in the States at this point. He's one of the more popular luchadors out of out of everybody who's being exposed a little more globally at this time. So pulling pulling a gimmick away, or at least part of a gimmick away, from someone who's who's had somewhat success i i really could never understand why eric bischoff made the call he made that he made um you can listen to other interviews and and shoot interviews and such where he talks more about ray mysterio losing the mask i won't I won't do that. Uh, I won't speak for Eric Bischoff on this podcast uh, at this point. So, But here we have the end of the match. Uh, Ray Mysterio does a... Kind of like a springboard moonsault. And hits Kevin Nash in the head with his knee brace by mistake. Which knocks Nash out. Hall comes in after the referees distracted. And he ends up hitting... He ends up interfering. And puts Ray in the outsider's edge. Knocking Ray out. So he drags Nash and puts... Him on top of Rey Mysterio, the referee gets uh, undistracted, and he makes the three count, which ends the match. It was actually a really solid match between the four guys, and very little outside interference from Lex Luger and Miss Elizabeth, which I was really surprised that. I think they should have probably had a little bit more to kind of give more beef to this whole situation with Rey losing his mask, like, to me. Not only was it a bad idea, but in, in that respect, it was just poorly executed. So I was never a fan of that. You have the guys, you have everybody in the ring right now as Ray is being demasked. I wonder where that mask is now. Whoever owns that mask, if if it's if it's in the hands of a collector, is um, is lucky. It's, it's quite a piece of history here. So he unmasks. And the first thing I said was, he's got such a baby face. And he does. He's you know obviously Ray's young at this point. I think he's in his early twenties or, or around there. And Nash hears Nash making fun of him, like put the mask back on. <laughs> I think Nat, yeah, Nash eventually takes the mask and tries to put it on himself, just acting like a, a complete idiot about it. Uh, as Ray's leaving, he gets a cheap pop from the crowd. Uh, from from the crowd, especially the ladies. The ladies seem to love the way Ray looks. I mean, he's not a bad looking dude. But uh, he's leaving, you know, people are giving him reassurance like, hey man, it's going to be okay, fuck those guys. And he has this look on his face, I don't know whether he's trying to not laugh or trying not to cry as he's walking past the fans like slapping hands with them and such now here they show the replay of the match where you get to see ray hit nash in the head with the knee brace i don't know if that was done intentionally or not if it if it was done intentionally they made they definitely made it work and uh, it was very believable God damn! I miss the outsiders. I really do miss the outsiders. Such a well-oiled fucking tag team. People can say whatever the fuck they want, and you're more you're more than uh, you're more than available to disagree with me. But they do have chemistry, and they have chemistry. The likes of um, Anderson and Blanchard, or You know, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. I know those are strong words, but it's true. It really is true. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing together. And uh, I was always a fan of them as a tag team as opposed to them as singles wrestlers. So that match is over. Again, we are watching WCW Super Brawl 9, which is from 1999. February 15th of 1999. I'm sorry, February 22nd of 1999. Excuse me. And uh, this is the 20th anniversary of the show. That's why we're covering here on the 20 by 20 crew. You can catch this on the WWE Network over at 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash WWE Network. That's all one word. Get yourself a subscription. There should be information on the page of how you can get that at a possible discount. Here we see Papa Pump. He's the next Wolfpack member to have a match. He is... Carrying the United States title, if I'm not mistaken, and um, he he's at he's at ringside. He picks up some lady from out of the audience. Um, obviously, not not bad looking. You know, he he loves his freaks at this point and his hoes. He actually gets on the mic and talks about how his he loves when his he's in town because his hoes come to holler at him or some shit. But this this gimmick with Scott Steiner and Big Papa Pump, I fucking hated it. He's horrible on the microphone, not that I'm any better, but he's being paid thousands of dollars to do this shit. I'm not, so (laughs) he, again, this is that angle where uh, it's him versus DDP, and it's all about DDP's wife. Getting back to Scott Steiner on the mic really quick, he's horrible on the mic. He ends up saying the word fault as fought. So you really have to pay attention to what the hell he's saying, because otherwise... You're going to get it misunderstood, and you're going to think he's talking about fighting people in the past tense. (laughs) Uh, uh, Oh, this is the television title, if I'm not mistaken, not the U.S. title. So Uh, This is for the TV title, and it is against DDP. This whole, I said this on a previous episode, this whole angle where guys are, are beefing with DDP or feuding with DDP because of his wife because of DDP's wife Kimberly the WCW just really dropped the ball on this one time and time again i mean they did they tried to do it with buff i don't remember whether the whole thing with Buff was before this or after this, right off the top of my head. But back when WCW was dealing with Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan and all their disagreements, not just from a booking standpoint, but the personal matters that spilled onto the camera between uh, them two and then Kevin Sullivan's wife, Woman, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, Woman, who was part of the Four Horsemen, and and she's done other stuff for WCW. At this point, but the woman was Kevin Sullivan's wife, in in you know outside of the ring in in real life, and not, this this had nothing to do with the company. They were actually married, and she ends up getting into a relationship with Crispin Benoit you know she wanted to leave Kevin Sullivan and it caused quite the controversy between these guys because on WCW television and pay-per-view these guys would just shoot fight each other pretty much. I mean they would have matches against each other but they would turn into shoot fights because they were pissed about the whole woman thing. It was one of those deals where WCW didn't didn't really have the foresight to look ahead and, and kind of do the unscrupulous thing and be like, hey, we should use this to our advantage. Let's book these guys in a in a, a better program. Let this play out almost organically. It just kind of happened. They would get on, on the camera and they would beat the piss out of each other. For real. And WCW never properly capitalized off of that. Whatever happened on camera that we got to see was of no decision by WCW. It was all the decision of Kevin Sullivan and or Crispin. Benoit. It wasn't necessarily booked that way. They just really hated each other over uh, their personal matter, and this is what I'm talking about when we when we talk about DDP and DDP's wife. These were these were company generated angles. They weren't real. It showed there should have been a lot more realism this this angle, this specific angle, because they had they had all the all they had to do was study Sullivan versus Benoit and everything. From that situation They could have took that information And applied it to this angle with DDP No matter who he was fighting Whether it be Scott Steiner, Buff Bagwell, whoever I think the that these matches And this angle could have went longer And been a way more successful Than they were I'm not trying to take anything away from DDP here. DDP's uh, kind of, you know, in his prime and still still on a fucking hot streak as a performer. DDP was obviously a late bloomer to the wrestling industry, becoming... Uh an in-ring worker, not just a manager, uh, somewhere around the age of like, I want to say 36, 36, 37, or 38, he actually became a wrestler, even though he had been in the business for quite some time, so this is, this is all still relatively new to DDP, but uh, he carries it well, he, he, he's a natural almost, I don't know that I would ever have put uh, a world title on him when WCW did, but, and you know what, I actually would have done sooner I would have done it sooner because he was hotter than he was when he actually won a world championship so but here we have him uh, it's actually the match is supposed to be Scott Steiner versus DDP and it's actually become Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell versus DDP because Buff has come out in support of the Wolf Pack. Which the commentary team keeps basically bashing it in your head that the Wolfpack are out there to support each other throughout the pay-per-view, and they're not going to let anybody go up against them and try to take them over. So literally, every time there's a fucking Wolfpack member out here, it's it. They're not alone. And let's face it, Scott is enough of a fucking meathead and uh dickhead on top of that to where I don't think he needs any anybody out there with him. He just needs to be pissed off in the proper manner, and the whole He'll handle his own business. Getting back to, getting back to Scott Steiner's Big Papa Pump character, I fucking hated it. Um, I don't. If if you're gonna turn him NWO, that's fine, I guess. I, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. I think we we covered pretty much all of that in our NWO episode. But I, to be honest, I don't. I don't know how I would have booked Scott Steiner. I know I wouldn't have booked him this way. Um, and when I say this way, I mean, part of the NWO, I think he makes a, an awesome heel on his own without the use of a faction. Cause let's face it, while he was with the NWO, whether it was black, black and white or, um, or Wolfpack or what have you, he kind of just always did his own thing. And the NWO for as, as, as uniform as they were, he didn't, he didn't always seem like a team player as, as the other guys were. He was more of a a loose cannon per se. So it doesn't really make sense for me to have him join the NWO. I think he would have been a heel, a good heel all to himself. They still could have put titles on him. I'm, I'm not above him getting a title here and there. I think the feud with his brother over the years was mismanaged and could have went a hell of a lot better. Because both of them are excellent wrestlers, obviously. Uh, there was a huge potential for them to have excellent actual pro wrestling matches. Uh, keep fucking Scott Steiner off the mic. I know at this point he loves talking about being the big bad booty daddy and all that stupid bullshit. They should have gave him a mouthpiece. I don't know who at this point, but they should have given given him a mouthpiece. But in this match, I, again, Scott Steiner's no shill. You can say what you want about him, and you know, obviously, he's had bouts with drop foot, and uh, you know, multiple injuries because of uh, the steroid usage. But in this match, the one we're talking about right now against DDP, he he shows you exactly what he can do. He's he he is Scott he is Scott Steiner the heel. And it works. It works well for this match. Um, You still get a a good mix of straight-up heel Scott Steiner just acting, you know, doing the theater part of pro wrestling. But then you also get the actual pro wrestler Scott Steiner. And you get to see belly to back suplexes that are perfectly executed. Uh, you get to see submissions, a nice mix of of everything you need to, to qualify as a pro wrestler. Even chair shots. Uh, and, and so th- like this whole thing with Buff being out here, it becomes m- moot. It becomes null and void. Like you don't need him out there. Here we see Buff Bagwell um, taking apart the turnbuckle. We are at the one hour, 48 minute and 40 second mark on this pay-per-view. He's taking apart actually two turnbuckles with some uh, some pliers there some snips and um, in order for Scott Steiner to use use the actual metal turnbuckles against DDP. Charles Robinson the referee is trying to get him uh, to get the hell out of here. I think he's actually throwing him out he took the turnbuckle away from Buff and he's like, that's it, get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah, he's kicking him out. Um, I don't know, I, you know, out of all the work they did together, I don't know why Buff Bagwell didn't take some notes on the way Scott Steiner performed. I think Buff Bagwell could have learned a little bit from Scott Steiner. And I <laughs> I know how crazy that fucking sounds because, let's face it, Scott Steiner is, is not the most beloved wrestler out there, that's for damn sure. Uh, he definitely always puts his foot in his mouth. Again, he should stay off the mic. As stupid as he is, guess what, guys? He can wrestle, and I I won't take that away from him. I I know there's fans that are out there who are not Scott Steiner fans. I don't call myself a Scott Steiner fan, but I do respect that he he can actually do pro wrestling shit. As, As we see here, he's bullying... Charles Robinson the referee chasing him around the ring because Robinson took a chair away from. Him. But yeah, he can he can work. He can work when he wants to. I think that I think that's a better thing to say. Scott Steiner can work a wrestling match whenever he feels like it. If he doesn't feel like it, you're not going to get much out of him. And that's saying a lot because if you go back uh, I remember listening to an episode of the 605 podcast with uh, Brian Last and they were talking about the Steiner brothers in the WWF, especially, or more specifically, the time where Scott Steiner was getting a singles push with the company, and the or the possibility at him winning the Royal Rumble one year. And he addressed all those rumors and he talked really in depth about Scott Steiner and and all the potential with that whether it was good or bad and at that point in time even Brian Last will tell you he clearly needed work he it wasn't he wasn't very polished he he there was a little bit of a, an adjustment period him becoming a singles wrestler but i think i think the the late 80s early 90s and now here in 1999 are two different worlds for scott steiner and i think he i think he's finally grown into becoming heel Scott Steiner, and, and that's why he does it so well. I also think, uh, again, I'm not trying to take anything away from his opponent here, DDP, because DDP clearly helps carry this fucking match. Uh, that That's for damn sure. Let me make that clear. Uh, this is not all Scott Steiner. Uh, DDP definitely does more than his fair share of work here because, let's face it, he's making Scott Steiner look good. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do, but DDP to me uh, manages to do that here in this match. Again, DDP's still pretty fucking hot. I mean, the diamond, the diamond cutter, still a really hot fucking move here in 1999. Especially since uh, he was able to find a variety of ways to just like pull it out of his ass and out of nowhere, seemingly. I I know I've heard um, him talk and and also other wrestlers talk about the diamond cutter where. They were genuinely shocked when they would be talking about going over, you know, the way they wanted their matches to work, and he would be like, yeah, we'll do this, this, and then I'll be able to pull the diamond cutter out, and they would be astonished, like, wow, I never thought of that being able to be done that way, so... Very innovative on the part of uh, DDP here. So Scott Steiner now has DDP in essentially a camel clutch. And DDP is actually going to get choked out here. Tongue hanging out and all. (laughs) This match. So Scott Steiner retains the world television title. The match goes a little less than 14 minutes. I believe it's booked at like 13 minutes 53 seconds. Another thing uh, real quick before Scott Steiner leaves the ring here as he poses in the corner. He's one of those guys that, I know he's got very defined calves, but it looked, compared to his fucking upper body, it looks like he skipped leg day like a motherfucker. (laughs) And, um, I'm, I'm really tired of hearing the NWO Wolfpack theme at this point in the pay-per-view. It is fucking monotonous. They're gonna show you the replay of the, some replays, highlights of the match, Scott Steiner does a... Super Frankensteiner off the top rope. Uh, You see the usage of the bear turnbuckle here with Scott Steiner. Papa Pump. Papa Pump wins. Uh, Buff Bagwell... Again, he got pushed to the back at some point in the ring. He got uh, excommunicated from the ring. He, For me, Buff Bagel only really worked as part of Vicious and Delicious in the NWO with him and Scott Norton. Now we're seeing a stretcher being set at ringside for DDP. They're putting a neck brace on him. Scott Steiner has already turned over the gurney. Already turned over the stretcher. He's like, fuck this bullshit. Give me my title and my sunglasses, and I'm going to leave. So, ladies and gentlemen, Papa Pump, Scott Steiner, with the win here on WCW Super Brawl 9, which is uh, 1999. Again, this is the 20th anniversary of this show. That's why we're covering it here on the 20x20 Ring Crew. Uh, thank you for hanging in there with us. Um, don't forget to take time and, and support the show. You can do that by going to... 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash raise getting yourself some discounted gift cards and I bring it up here specifically here because you can go there and you can buy discount GameStop gift cards and why do I suggest GameStop gift cards because you can take and buy discounted GameStop gift cards through us through raise go to your local GameStop or shop online and uh, purchase yourself some WWE Network gift cards So you're actually paying less than the normal price for a subscription to the network. And uh, I know everybody has, including myself, everybody has issues with the WWE, but the network is fucking phenomenal. A plethora of really good wrestling, old school wrestling, that you just really can't find anywhere else in some way, shape, or form at this point. At least not legally. So definitely, uh, as we see DDP leaving via stretcher here... Take the time out, support the show, 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash raise R-A-I-S-E. Well, now we're seeing a backstage segment, I believe it's an interview, yes, it's an interview for WCW.com with Mark Madden and Bam Bam Bigelow. Bam Bam Bigelow has a match here later on in the pay-per-view against Goldberg, uh, which is an interesting feud, but as Bam Bam does his uh, thing on the mic, for Mark Madden and WCW.com, we, uh, we're actually going to go to the seventh match in the pay-per-view, which is going to involve pulling double duty by Scott Hall. So Scott Hall, again, another this is another fucking issue with WCW. Earlier in the pay-per-view, they showed you a video package basically explaining that uh, the following match... Was kind of brought to you with a mixture of Scott Hall, Brett the Hitman Hart, Rowdy Roddy Piper, and Ric Flair. Essentially, because because someone was unable to perform, I don't remember who they uh, they essentially. Oh, it might have been Bret Hart. I think Bret Hart was out with a uh, a concussion at this. Point. So Bret Hart was out with a concussion. He is unable to compete as the United States champion. So what they do is they essentially just hand the belt over to Scott Hall. And they played it up as like, well, we don't have obviously the, the champ isn't here and he's not able to to, to perform. So we're going to make sure you guys get a match. And you're probably wondering like, well, why didn't they hold some sort of a tournament and, and make, make a big production out of it? Uh, think about it from these terms. and And again, I don't necessarily agree with these terms, but think about it from these terms. They already have the finals, like semifinals and finals, of the tag team tournament on this pay-per-view. I don't know how well two tournaments on the same pay-per-view would would have gone over, but I also don't agree, I adamantly don't agree, with just handing a title over to somebody. You have uh, Scott Hall come out with Disco Inferno. And Here it is again. We're going to hear it for the umpteenth fucking time tonight is the NWO Wolfpack theme as he comes out with Disco Inferno. Uh, The the match is against Rowdy Roddy Piper, who is current US champ. So if I'm not mistaken, I'm sorry, they didn't give it to Hall. They gave it to Piper. So Piper takes takes the belt and he's going to defend it here against Scott Hall. And there's plenty of guys, as Scott Hall comes to the ring, there's plenty of guys and fans in general with signs in the, in the audience, uh, there's one, there's a guy that says the disciples, he has a sign that says the, the the disciples of destruction, for some odd reason, I, uh, I don't know who or what he means by that, but he's pretty fucking adamant about showing it on the camera at some point, Piper comes out, uh, with his reality check (laughs) t-shirt, I always thought that was a, a cool merch idea, and I think, I think at any given point in professional wrestling history, when it came to... I always thought it was a really good idea for wrestlers to come up with their own merch uh, in general. But um, just also also wear, wear whatever the hell they were going to wear and just have the company kind of... Make it legally work, um, whether that be obtaining the rights to, you know, usage of a shirt or, or what have you. Now, clearly, the, the t-shirt that Rowdy Roddy Piper's wearing in this match, or was wearing in this match to come out to the ring, is one that he made on his own. It has the word reality and a check mark on the front, and um, something akin to Rowdy Roddy 1999 on the back and whether this t-shirt was marketed to to the fans legitimately through WCW or not let me stop here for a second <laughs> they probably didn't market this t-shirt to the the masses and uh, again i think that's another fundamental problem with WCW at this point their their merch marketing you know th- people can talk uh, all the smack they want, no pun intended, about the WWF or WWE and the shop zone and, and how super gimmicky it has become. But from a business standpoint, it, it makes sense as, as, um, as cliche, as uh, mundane. I mean, there's, there's a plethora of words you could use to describe the shop zone at, uh, in this day and age. I mean, hell, we always make fun of the idea that they actually have a Rusev Day calendar, or had a Rusev Day calendar, where literally every day was Rusev Day, and it sold. It sold like hotcakes. I think WCW was really never on par with the WWF in the way of sales of merch. I'm not counting the NWO stuff here, because, let's face it, they pushed that shirt to the moon and back, and... It still is probably one of the top five selling, or top ten selling t- sh- wrestling T-shirts of all fucking time. They do have that credit to to be given, but everything else, I mean, you don't you don't necessarily. Obviously, it's it's not being shoved in your face when it comes to WCW. They should have found some sort of healthy mix, pushing the shirts or pushing merch without letting it just oversaturate your television. Which I think they do They do that a lot They do that way more often Than they should uh, Especially these days You have, in the way of marketing You have places like Ring of Honor and New Japan Especially New Japan uh, With the Bullet Club yeah, the guys wear t-shirts to the ring, and, uh, you know, they that's, that's kind of the extent of their t-shirt marketing, but it works. You know, the character's over, the factions are over, and, uh, you know, here's a better example, is Tetsuya Naito from Los Ingobernables de Japón. Here you have a faction that's over. Usually when Naito comes to the ring, he's got some sort of garb on. It's not always the same thing. And especially if they're trying to push a new shirt, he's usually the first one to wear it. They don't don't always tell you, they rarely tell you, like, hey, you can go get that over at Pro Wrestling Tees or or some other place on the web. But everybody knows, everybody who's a fan already knows, I know where to go get that shirt for my favorite wrestler or wrestlers. And the WWE needs to kind of fucking understand that. I can understand pushing television time, or, or you know, a mention of hey, there's a, a new hat or a new shirt or whatever, really quickly. But they really do just use up too much television time to accomplish um, their merchandise marketing. And so, WCW, I I never fault the WCW for that. I just think WCW could have done a better idea at merchandise uh, at their merchandising marketing. Uh, here we. We still have Scott Hall beating the piss out of Rowdy Roddy Piper in the Tree of Woe, which is you have your opponent stuck in the corner of the ring upside down. Uh, Disco Inferno is going to interfere here and kind of choke out Rowdy Piper as he's tied up in the Tree of Woe. It was it was always cool to see Piper in general. Um, I've always been a fan of Rowdy Roddy Piper, but it was always cool to see him, especially in his later years, just kind of have at it with um, different guys that you don't necessarily um, peg him to to be up against. And for me, Scott Hall is one of those guys. You know, clearly, the, they have both in the biz- been in the business here for a very long time. If I if I was measuring this in wind winds, uh, this is like Scott Hall's second wind of a career. And this has got to be like Rowdy, Rowdy Piper's third or fourth. I mean... Let's face it, these guys have been in the business long enough to where they should have had at least two successful runs. And both of them have at this point, so. I love, (laughs) I love this, this old school approach to this match. You have disco outside helping scott hall as annoying as i find disco he you know scott hall had uh piper in the abdominal stretch or abdominal stretch sorry i have trouble saying that word and then he would have disco grab his hand and pull for leverage which was that's so such a fucking old school move i love that here we see piper with the sleeper hold on Scott Hall. Scott Hall selling it like a motherfucker. Again, selling. I cannot express the importance of selling in a match. It makes the match ten times better. So Hall's selling the sleeper hold. Sleeper hold. He's actually beckoning Disco Inferno to come into the ring and Disco does and proceeds to get his ass beat by Piper. Piper at this point uh, in his career, oh here comes Nash. And Nash is being uh, handled by Piper even before getting in the ring. But uh, going back, to, going back to Piper at this point in his career, again it was really interesting to see just him just work for WCW in general and see who they had programs uh, to see who they paired him up in programs with. Scott Hall gets the win in this match via like roll up pin. He actually put his legs on the second rope. And as they go to hand the belt to Scott Hall, because Scott Hall wins the match, Piper takes the belt away from the referee. And Scott Hall's like, this is bullshit, give me my belt. He's on the mic, he's telling Piper hand over the belt. But Piper knows he, he got cheated, so. Uh, now the Wolfpack is going to con Piper in the ring. Scott Hall with the classic, hey yo, on the mic. And... <laughs> During uh, during one of the What Happened When podcasts with Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson, Schiavone had remarked that over the years Scott Hall got pissed off and kind of almost stopped trying to do the whole uh, survey bit for the NWO because of the sound guy. And, and the reason he mentions it in the podcast is because he was trying to get a point Across the point that this is how fucked up WCW was in their everyday daily operation of stuff. He said it got to a point where Scott Hall, just even when he would be live on television, he would look directly in the camera and like wait for the the sound guy to get his shit together because more often than not the sound guy missed his cue again I I think that's just yet another point of of what WCW was doing wrong uh, during their, their life and times so the match is completely over now Hall said, hey, I want the belt, I, you know, I pinned you one, two, three, fair and square. He had the belt for a second, actually Disco has the belt now, but now the Outsiders are in the ring and they are taking apart Rowdy Roddy Piper, or trying to as he uh, escapes. I would have loved to have seen Piper wrestle the likes of Eddie Guerrero here in WCW, Chris Jericho, because at this point, Piper, although he's up there in age and whatever, he can still go, he can still make the the matches interesting, and again, one of those, one of the veterans that you would actually want on your fucking roster. Who actually wasn't afraid to work and and still could work. I remember meeting Piper at a convention. I want to say 2000, and he couldn't be any nicer. He was really awesome. I was there with my brother. I was there with a couple of my brothers. My brother had actually dressed up as as Piper. He he was so nice to all of us. Um, I couldn't couldn't have been a nicer guy. You never know just how. These guys are going to take it when you go to meet them. Sometimes they're dicks. And that was quite the contrary when it came to Rowdy Roddy Piper. Obviously, he is no longer with us. And uh, it's a shame. It's a shame because the business business could not only use his mind. He was one hell of a worker. And he was always one hell of a worker. No matter where he worked, no matter how old he was. We continue on. We have the... I believe it's the first of a double main event here. Because so this is your first of two main events and sadly what makes this a main event billed by WCW is that it features Goldberg and uh I bring that up because this match also features Bam Bam Bigelow who's one hell of an accomplished wrestler at this point way more accomplished than Bill Goldberg whether you like that statement or not but uh this is the match uh really quick that Scott Hall match with Piper uh ran about eight minutes and 19 seconds and again scott hall wins becoming the new u.s champion now we have goldberg and bam bam bigelow on the bill. And this this was uh this was always an interesting situation for me when it came to Bill Goldberg post post undefeated streak, post heavyweight championship run because it's like what do what are they going to do with him next? And I think that's probably the only, one of the only reasons I actually paid any remote attention to Bill Goldberg after those facts because just, just because of the way WCW was being run, you just, th- there was so much chaos backstage, and and again, with their daily operations, a lot of the staff didn't even know what the fuck was going on half the time. And that's a really sad thing to say, because I think if they would have had their shit together, we still would be, uh... I was mistaken. Seeing WCW flourish at this point. Goldberg comes out to the ring, and it's, it's just interesting to see what they what they decided to do with him here. So they, they put him against Bam Bam Bigelow and kudos to WCW for doing so. Because again, Bam Bam is a worker. He's, you know, obviously he's a big guy, so he's got enough beef to hang in the in the ring with Goldberg. But also, he knows what he's doing. So I was excited. I was excited to to kind of see this come to fruition and on pay-per-view no less. And I was interested to see how he was going to help put Goldberg over. Because let's face it, that's what he's in the ring to do. Whether whether I like that or not. He's there to get Goldberg over. And um, unfortunately, I, I think this match misses the mark when it comes to satisfying my appetite here. It it wasn't a completely bad match, but again, you have Goldberg. It seems like he just never really took the fucking time to properly train in the art of professional wrestling. And I'm sure I'm going to get flack for saying that, but I could give two shits. All you Goldberg fans out there, you were you were a fan of the the gimmick, not the actual fucking wrestler because he couldn't fucking wrestle. Whatever training he had over the years, it wasn't enough. I think if this were the WWF, and they had a hold of of something like the gimmick of Goldberg, and the man that was Goldberg, he would have endured something along the lines of what Mark Henry had to go through. Where Mark Henry was, you know, obviously the strongest man in the world, legitimately, you know, he was... He had that accolade before coming to the WWF. But while while there, while being in the WWF, that, that first year he was there, he was injured a lot. It was he, he admits, he admits it was his own fault at times. Like, he just wasn't, he wasn't getting it. He was getting hurt without, like, it wasn't a necessity. He could have completely avoided it. Now, I'm not saying Goldberg is prone to injuries here. What I'm saying is, uh, they. my point is, they both needed to learn how to wrestle. And that's the difference between Mark Henry and Bill Goldberg, because Mark Henry eventually learned how to to wrestle and wrestle successfully. So, for me, Mark Henry was worthy of his heavyweight title run. Goldberg wasn't. He was all gimmick and very little training, and they never really bothered to fix that. And now, over the years, you know, Goldberg, you'll see Goldberg, he, he definitely evolves into something more than a gimmick, but it isn't much. you got a guy who's in really good shape, Um, he's got a really great look, that's about it. It's it's all flash and no substance. And it, it kills me too because he's got mixed martial arts training and you would think they let him incorporate that into his in-ring work. And, and while we do see it from time to time, eventually the, you, you don't get a whole hell of a lot on the Bill Goldberg you just really don't. You know what? He's like, at Bill Goldberg in 1999 is like the equivalent of Rounder Rousey in 2019 for me, anyway. And that's what that's what it equates to to me. That, that's who that's who he equates to for me. Barely. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's got fucking hops. He just tried to drop kick Bam Bam, and he he got up there. He was he had a nice looking drop kick, but it was poorly executed. You can't even do that. (laughs) Someone once remarked to me that it really isn't a wrestling match until you see a drop kick. Because if you can't do a drop kick, what can you do? And I tend to agree here. What's good about putting Bam Bam Bigelow in there with a Bill Goldberg, it was as if the booking committee was like, you know what, we're gonna put Bam Bam in there so you could just shut the fuck up and wrestle. You're gonna learn how to wrestle one way or another. But, um... For my money, it, it didn't pan out that way. Bam Bam Bigelow has always impressed the hell out of me. First off, with his agility, I remember watching him years ago on WWF television uh, as he as he premiered there uh, years ago, and just watching him do the cartwheels and uh, things of that nature with a man of his stature is was impressive. Because growing up, I was I was a big guy. I was the three hundred pound guy or close to it for a majority of my life and so watching him do that i was just shocked and amazed that was you know people of of similar stature to me were capable of doing shit like that. that's one of the he's he's one of the performers over the years that really kept me around watching professional wrestling you know i took a break in 93 94 and uh i was just but then at the time too what killed me was um WWF television I just it got so cheesy and monotonous for me I just couldn't take it anymore and I wanted something different and and right around that time you know the business in general the industry in general was was not doing so well Um, WCW had uh, an even worse product in 93 for my taste and so at that point I, I really didn't have much, much other product to be, to be watched. Um, cause I don't think I was getting any other, any other, um, stuff at the time. Uh, you know, a few tapes here and there from, From people I knew, but for the most part, like, you know, obviously world class wasn't around for me anymore. You know, the NWA had turned into WCW, so there went that. That was all the TV I really had. Again, tapes were few and far between. I I wasn't, I really wasn't heavy into tape trading or anything at that, so I didn't have a lot of access to tape. At some point in this match, you have Bill Goldberg hit his head and took. Like, a there's, like, a divot of skin missing on his forehead. And he, he just, like, you never would have known he got hurt. He just, he doesn't care. He, it's like he didn't, it didn't faze him. Which speaks to the gimmick of Goldberg, but, again, he's just all gimmick. All fucking gimmick. I I keep bringing it up, I hate to sound like a dead horse, but so much wasted potential with this fucking guy. Think of how big, the go back, go back and watch any part of the Monday Night War with Bill Goldberg and his rise to popularity as As US champion and then world champ think about those matches think about the excitement everybody even myself was so fucking excited to see Bill Goldberg and who he was gonna conquer next and just how far this was going to go that's the problem they they booked him as such and they never they never really thought about what's gonna happen after this juggernaut reaches a certain you know that has to have been figured out for him to become more successful it should have been figured out during the the beginning of that starting to push him and that's what pains me about their booking committee throughout the years they've had people like Kevin Sullivan, Vince Russo, Kevin Nash, uh, Ric Flair, uh, just a plethora of guys handle the book or be a part of the booking committee and you wonder like what goes through the mind of someone like Kevin Sullivan who's clearly he he has he has been proven to to book successfully. But what goes through? Who was responsible for Goldberg? Where was there such a fuck up? Who didn't have the foresight to look ahead and figure out what the fuck to do with it? Bigelow just got pushed off the top rope by Goldberg. Bo- Goldberg could have easily shown some some uh, ring knowledge if he had had it and he could have powerbombed him. I think it would have made it made it more exciting than just kind of politely pushing Bigelow off of the top. Here we have the patented Goldberg spear. And he's got a showboat, you know. And if I'm not mistaken, he does get Bigelow up for the um, the suplex slam here. I take that back. He ends up not doing the, the uh, suplex slam. He ends up uh, spearing him for a second time. Now he gets him up for the slam, barely. And again, so, you know, keep in mind, Bigelow's pushing 300 pounds. Seems like Goldberg had kind of a hard time getting him up. But Goldberg takes the win. Uh, The match goes about 11 and a half minutes, somewhere around there. And uh, this this is their their continued push for Bill Goldberg at this point here in 1999. It sucks. It sucks that uh, you have someone like Bam Bam Bigelow taking second place to someone like Bill Goldberg. Kudos to Bam Bam for doing the job. I think this match would have been a hell of a lot better if Bam Bam had someone in there with a little more experience. It's really frustrating for me to watch such an established performer just do the job for somebody who didn't, you know, clearly didn't care enough or have the foresight enough to learn the craft a little better. But that's what WCW was at this point, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Ladies and gentlemen... We are, again, watching the 20th anniversary of WCW's Super Brawl 9 taking place in Oakland, California at the Oakland Arena, February 22nd of 1999. If you don't have a WWE Network subscription, because that's how we're watching this, you can get one over at 20x20crew.com slash podcast slash WWE Network, that's all one word. We have Michael Buffer in the ring right now. We are at the... Two hour thirty-one minute fifty-three second mark of the pay-per-view. We got about another twenty minutes to go. And this is our final match of the evening. So let's take you back. This is our main event. Let's take you back. At the beginning of the pay-per-view, we got to see the lovely and gorgeous Tori Wilson sprawled out in nothing but a bed sheet, accepting tickets to Super Brawl from someone we don't know who. You will find out in this match who that is if you haven't watched this spoiler it is david flair the son of Ric flair who vying for the heavyweight title here in this match so this match is hollywood hulk hogan who is currently champ going up against the legendary Ric flair hence michael buffer being in the ring and david flair is going to come out at the end and basically ruin it for his dad i'm spoiling this now because there's there could be a lot said about this story, this, this circumstance. Hogan comes out first. He's got, uh, <laughs> he's got all black and white on except for his shirt, which is a, an NWO Wolfpack shirt. Again, Hogan riding the bandwagon and, uh, making sure he's over as, as over can be. So he's got the red and black on as far as t-shirts go. And then he's got, uh, he's actually got the, the, Heavyweight title spray painted in red paint as opposed to black. So he's coming out to the ring first. Again, I'd really be interested in knowing who booked this this match and how much Hulk Hogan had say so over it or and and also Ric Flair. Because the basis of the match, the basic story of the match, Pitt's father versus son, that that is one of the true golden rules of professional wrestling well storytelling in general you have to make it as uh, as relatable to your audience as possible and they, they managed to do that here with this whole angle of David Flair basically betraying his father so you have a, fa- a son betraying his father that's the basic story of this match now, obviously you don't know that till the end of the match you have all the makings of, of, of a really good wrestling match and again whether you're a fan of Either of these guys are not, if you think they're dinosaurs at this point, ho- however you want to uh, judge this match. Both of these guys are completely capable of having this, this match. Foyer comes out pretty nonchalantly. He, there's, there isn't very many, uh, there isn't much showboating. He just kind of waltzes out to the ring very quietly. Uh, looks like he's got a couple of butterfly band-aids on his, uh, his cheek there. On his left cheek from a previous altercation, Hogan lets him have the ring, which again is another another thing that can be said about Hogan. Whether you like it or not, uh, he knows he knows what he's got to do to to be over, to be over with the crowd, to be over with with the company, and he's very adamant. That's why he has uh, at this point. That's why he has creative control over his character, or at least partial creative control creative control over his character. I think that's Hogan's downfall, though, is I think he he comes to a point where he he thinks he knows everything and he thinks he knows what is always going to be over even when he's wrong. Hogan creeps back into the ring. He's telling Flair to just hold on a second. He's pointing at the belt. Flair could give two shits. He just wants to wrestle. (laughs) I haven't watched this in probably a good 10 to 12 years. I still feel the same way. I, I feel that, you know, clearly... There's going to be some of you that think of these guys as dinosaurs at this point. But this match, it works well. They both they both know what they're doing in the ring. They both know what they need to do to make the match relevant and keep themselves relevant. You know, Flair completely is still at this point completely able to go 60 minutes if he fucking wanted to i don't know if hogan could go 60 minutes but he sure as hell going to try to entertain um while he does it and he knows how to be a super fucking heel they both know how to sell which is really important here because uh, you know clearly they're up there in age so you, you've, there's got to be a little more theatrics in it than uh actual wrestling uh, hogan out of the two, Hogan only has a few set moves, pretty much. As opposed to Ric Flair, who definitely is a much better technical wrestler than Hulk Hogan. I know someone's going to be mad out there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they start off kind of uh, posing against one another, getting the best of one another. Uh, Flair actually spits at Hogan at some point at the beginning of the match. Hogan is going corner to corner with Lariat after Lariat on Ric Flair. And Flair Flair ends up doing his uh, patented... Uh, face drop to the mat after being hit with a couple of those lariats one of the things i loved here was they actually chopped the hell out of each other and i, and I if i if i recall correctly hogan does a lot more fucking chopping in this match than rick flair which really surprises the shit out of me because i think if there was ever a time to showcase rick flair's chopping abilities it's this fucking match i love that rolling knee that rick flair does off the ropes, and when I mean off the ropes, like, not from the corner, he, he kind of bounces off the ropes, and then rolls through with the knee drop right to the head, I remember Triple H, uh, stating one time, like, one of the first times he took one of those from Ric Flair, he's like, it hurt like a son of a bitch, <laughs> Flair is a fucking master at being whipped into the corner, and then, Floating over and going like falling to the outside of the ring. I'm sure his back fucking suffered for it, but damn, he makes it look good. Hogan's got a chair now. Again, major fucking heel shit from Hulk Hogan. I was, (laughs) I was so tired of Hulk Hogan being a heel because he did it so well. I know that sounds kind of uh, contradictory there, but whether you're whether you're watching professional wrestling or actors in a movie or a television show. If they're the bad guy and they're getting on your nerves to the point where you're getting riled up, let's face it. The truth is, they're doing their job correctly. If they're getting under your skin, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And Hogan did that for me a lot. I mean, here, Flair's already busted open. Uh, they're they're battling on the outside of the uh, of the ring here in one of the corners of the 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 guardrail. And you know, Hogan's biting Flair's bloody head. Uh, he's already scratched his back. Uh, he's hit him with a chair. They're just pulling out all the stops here against rick flair as frustrating as that was for me to see like oh here we go hulk hogan's gonna get over again and win the match he does his job i can't be mad at that anymore he does his job he's got blood from from f- giving uh rick flair a suplex onto the the mats at ringside he's got blood all over his rib cage on his right side man flair's bleeding like a fucking stuck pig jesus that was one cool cool uh, little move exchange Hogan used to do in his heel days for sure. I think he. I think it came across better in his heel days, anyway. Where he would uh, land an elbow drop, like he. And again, this is not a high flying move. He would, his opponent would be on the mat. He would go for an elbow drop, get up, and do it two or three more times, depending on the situation. I always dug that little exchange between Hogan and his opponents. I think that was really fucking cool, uh, especially transitioning into something else, especially when it was something more heelish. As we see Hogan take off the weightlifting belt. And use it on Ric Flair. I get, I get. Ric Flair is a guy who's like, hey, if if this is going to work for the match, let's do it. But Hogan, Hogan is clearly not holding back with with this fucking weight belt, and he is beating the piss out of Ric Flair so much so that you can tell Ric Flair has had enough. He gets up and gets angry with Hogan a couple different times because he's he's getting hit really fucking hard with this belt. And Hogan Hogan much like The Rock uh, with McFoley, Hogan kind of took it to the limit man when it came to beating the piss out of people with that weight belt. You know Flair is definitely not giving up. He's being knocked down and he just gets right back up and gets pissed off. Now Hogan's kind of hulking up but Flair Flair continues on with the low blow and yet another low blow <laughs> but yeah Hogan that that really used to piss me off when Hogan would take that weight belt off and just beat the ever-living shit out of his opponent because you knew he wasn't gonna hold back he never held back with that fucking belt but then when someone came to do it to him much like Ric flair is about to do right now it wasn't the same hogan hogan wouldn't sell hogan didn't take nearly as many shots with the belt as as his opponent would do again much like the rock the rock the rock wasn't gonna take 14 fucking chair shots for mick foley but mick foley was supposed to do it for the rock and that's my point here Just Hogan being Hogan. You can tell because of his reaction. And and one of them that's really common when he gets hurt is when he says, Oh God, when he screams out, Oh God, and he's in pain, he's really fucking hurting. Uh, He'll tell you that himself. Hogan's busted open now due to being hit with the belt buckle of the the weight belt from Ric Flair. Tori Wilson... uh, absolutely gorgeous, coming out to the ring and she's gonna get up on the apron and she's going to pretty much tell Ric Flair to fucking stop. And Ric Flair's basically showing uh gyrating his hips at her <laughs> and taking a couple slaps in the process. Uh Here's where she gets down off of the the mat, off the apron. And that's kind of the extent of her interfering at this point. And we'll later see why. You can say what you want about WCW using dinosaurs... Or older wrestlers to accomplish main events for their company. But here in 1999, this match, whether you agree with me or not, this match makes it a hard argument. And I I think what it boils down to, I think it boils down to just having extremely capable main eventers in your main event. When you have that, and they're both willing to work with one another, I don't think the age matters for this match. All of this going on completely works for me. Even even the the bullshit uh, even the bullshit ending, the non clean ending. So now the uh, the referee is laid out. Hogan lays down the big boot on Ric Flair. Hogan has has made sure the referee was taken out. Flair gets the big boot. He gets set up for the the patented Hogan leg drop, and Hogan misses as Flair rolls out of the way. And now we see someone in all black with a black ski mask on and what looks to be a black and red NWO t-shirt under his leather jacket walk down to the ring and it would take someone with an IQ of 5 to not understand that this is David Flair. David Flair sneaks into the ring with a cattle prod, a stun gun, and hits Ric Flair with it a couple times. Tory Wilson shows approval by holding his hand at ringside. Charles Robinson wakes up and gives Hulk Hogan the win by a three-count pin. Water bottles are being thrown into the ring, um, amongst other things. Um, now David Flair and Tory Wilson are in the ring as Flair lay out on the, on the mat just... Pretty much dead and uh so hogan tori wilson and david flair are hugging showing that they're all in cahoots she gives a big hug to david flair who still has his mask on he does unmask himself obviously that's oh she actually unmasks him that's what ends up kind of like sealing the deal with this match. It, it's that timeless tale of father versus son. You can, you can disagree with me here, but that's why the match resonates with a lot of people. Uh, that's what makes Hogan's heel antics get over that much more, is the betrayal the the act of betrayal between a father and a son. The match goes about uh, 13 minutes, just under 13 minutes, and I, you know what? It's it's WCW 1999. Kevin Nash is coming in the ring now to help celebrate with Hogan. I don't know who booked this, but I I. I Wish booking like this would have been capable or, or, you know, actually put into play 2000 WCW. Because there was a lot of dreadful fucking wrestling and pay-per-views for WCW in the year 2000. Essentially, that is it. Um, Some really, really decent booking for a main event match here in WCW 1999. Again, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Super Brawl 9 1999. uh, Taking place 20 years ago. For WCW, the now defunct WCW, uh, this was this was an interesting pay-per-view to cover. Uh, the booking was was hit or miss at times, and uh, overall, the the show. If if I'm sitting here telling you it was a solid show, it wasn't completely a solid show, but it had a lot of potential. Thank you guys for hanging in here and and listening to the episode. I know this is one of the longer episodes, but uh, it's it's been a blast. Uh, I, I always love talking wrestler, wrestling with you guys. Both Matt and I love talking wrestling with you guys. We hope you sit there and support professional wrestling as always. Definitely support your 20x20 20 20 crew. You can do that on social media. Follow us on Instagram. Just look for us at Instagram.com slash 20x20crew. You can do that on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Twitter.com slash 20x20crew. We are on YouTube where we do the following contest, which is YouTube-exclusive stuff strictly for our YouTube channel whenever YouTube decides to let us uh, upload stuff and just cooperate with us. And you can get more information and, and check out the videos there over at 20x20crew.com slash podcast YouTube. You can email us at 20 x 20 crew at gmail.com for the time being, along with your thoughts, uh, suggestions for shows. We do do fan requests. We've done them in the past. Uh, We are also on Facebook. Facebook.com slash 20x20crew is our official page. Uh, We can also sit and chat with you on Facebook uh, over at Facebook.com slash groups slash 20x20talk. We love to sit and chat with you guys and pick your brains about professional wrestling always. And, of course, our home on the web, 20x20crew.com. Where you will find all previous episodes and uh, notes and and everything you could ever want to hear from us about professional wrestling. Until then, it has been a blast, and uh, I'm sorry for the the long the long uh, podcast here. But uh, Matt is still va- on vacation. I am still Joe. Until next week, I hope to see you in the ring. When Ric Flair's really hurt, happens to be ending at that.